0: ...on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. My guest today is Mike Miley, author of the book, Truth and Consequences, Game Shows in Fiction and Film, published in 2019 by University Press of Mississippi. Games of chance have appeared regularly in fiction and movies, and Mike's book analyzes their use as metaphors for aspects of life. We discuss many examples and present an overview of his great book, Welcome, Mike Miley. Hi, Mike. How are you today?
1: Hi, Joel. I'm doing okay. Thank you for having me.
0: So your book, Truth and Consequences, Game Shows in Fiction and Film, uh, was actually published about a year ago by the University Press of Mississippi, but I just happened to spot a reference to it. Been doing a number of authors from that publisher, and for some reason, it must have been listed someplace, and I spotted it. And it's a subject that I found interesting, so I'm excited to speak with you about it.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited to talk about it, and I appreciate uh, you know you having this not quite new book on the on the New Books podcast.
0: So, as someone who's watched game shows my entire life, and must admit, I grew up on them when I was young because um, back in my day which I'm older than you, we, we only had three channels. And during the daytime, it was either soap operas or game shows. This was in prior to where they started the talk shows, you know, that we now tend to fill up the TV stations. But uh, so I was interested in your subject. Before we get into the book, though, I wanted to get some details about your background. You've got extensive, extensive teaching experience and written many articles and other material. What was your personal journey to studying film and popular culture?
1: I guess I started out wanting to be a filmmaker and I guess my academic training is uh, is in filmmaking. I've got a master's in fine arts in film directing from the American Film Institute. And then when I was working in Los Angeles or I guess more accurately trying to get work in Los Angeles as a as a writer director I wound up taking a substitute teaching job uh, to give myself something to do while I was waiting for the phone to ring. And, <laughs> and you that, didn't want to um, wait
0: tables, huh?
1: I, I didn't. No, um, I figured like it was flexible enough where I could be around people. And uh, I don't know, it um, it just seemed like possibly I would think I was seeing that this might be an alternative career path at a certain point. But it, I, they wound, I wound up fitting in really well at the school that I wound up working at for a while. And I guess in coming to do that, I realized that I liked talking about other people's movies more than I liked making my own. And so it sort of fit nicely into where my, my teaching career and my academic writing career kind of line up pretty evenly uh, where this was just, I think a lot of the work that I was doing in movies was probably closer to film criticism or film analysis anyway. And so my my interest in it is kind of just I I, I, con- I obviously consume and think about film and popular culture a lot, and writing about it is just the way that I think I'm trying to understand what I like and why it appeals to me. And so I guess a lot of it is kind of self reflection uh, through these other other texts, um, and I, I guess that's more like how we understand ourselves in this time period anyway. Uh, in a, a you know an inundated landscape with with media. Um, and so this one, this particular project kind of brought me back to a lot of stuff that I, I watched more when I was a kid than as an adult. Uh, the, but the, the game show was kind of a fixture in my in my life when I, in summers when I was a kid. So this was a lot about trying to figure out what I liked about all of that, and and why it still appeals to me, you know, even when I'm much, much older. Um yeah I guess I guess that's it.
0: Yeah, well, and game shows they have their ebb and flows. It's certain it's sort of like other popular culture things that they never die out. They just keep coming back in different ways and I still remember, not, I mean, it's been a number of years now, but I remember when Who Wants to Be a Millionaire came on, the original one with Regis, and everybody yeah. went crazy about it. They ended up putting it on practically every night. And I remember that was back in the day where to try out for it, you had to go through the phone systems. And I actually tried out a number of times, never got on, obviously. But uh, so um, now we're back in, and I was going to mention that towards the end, but we're now back into a uh, game show uh, up you know f- upper times obviously and I think part of that has to do with pandemic part of it has to do with they're cheap to produce and frankly mm-hmm. you know they're also people are interested so you talked a little bit of yeah. it so what was you said you had experience with game shows when you were younger so obviously you mirror my interest as you say during the summer in particular um is there any particular game shows that first caught your eye or was it a matter that you just watched everything or or, or what? <laughs>
1: Yeah, it was mostly. I guess The Price Is Right would have been a big one, and Family Feud, the uh, the Ray Combs era of Family Feud, uh, I, is sort of when I came in. But the <clears throat> the big one though was uh, Press Your Luck when I was a little kid. Right, the the whammy, the animated whammy, was the coolest thing ever, and so that was the one that I, I guess I caught some of in its original run, but probably saw more of it in syndication when the USA Network. Would kind of fill their afternoon slate with uh, with game shows, so I would be able to catch you know Family Feud and then The Price is Right in the morning, and then do Pressure Luck, Wipeout, Bumper Stumpers, uh, you know things like that, uh, Card Sharks, all of that in the in the afternoon on USA, uh, and occasionally then you have those sort of hybrid ones like American Gladiators, or and then as a kid, I guess the other thing I was the the ripe age for Double Dare. On Nickelodeon, uh, which which was always a lot of fun, and that's another one that had a had a revival a couple of years ago. They um, they did a, a season or two of it with Mark Summers hosting co-hosting with uh, Liza Koshy, in, and and uh, it that was kind of fun to watch that with my with my kids. Um, but because yeah, you're right. Um, with the arrival of Millionaire, and then with reality shows, arguably the 21st century has been as good, if not better for game shows in the public consciousness than, than any other time period, maybe even more than the fifties. Uh, it, cause if you count reality competition shows as game shows, then so much of what's on TV is, is a form of a, of a game show one way or another, um, to the, the point where we don't even acknowledge that they're game shows, they're just shows.
0: It, it, yeah. Cause you're right. I mean, I remember when survivor first came on and, I meant to mm-hmm. look this up and get a chance, maybe you'll know. Um, it seemed to me that was during a period where there was a, either a writer's strike or there was something going on, and it became a way for television to get keep stuff on the air without having to have quote-unquote writers. And so it started what I would consider to be the modern uh, reality show uh, era as far as you know, that were at least revolved around game shows. And as you say, everything from, you know, Survivor to Bachelor to all of these shows, they all basically are game shows. The only question is, and another example is obviously American Idol. The only question is, okay, are there rules that are written down? Are there ways? Like, for example, I always wondered about American Idol because I don't know that I ever saw anything on the screen during that show that ever said that, they actually go by the votes that people give and how that all is, how they decide who goes on. I mean, some game shows, they're very precise, as we'll talk about when we start talking about the quiz shows of uh, the 50s. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, is it a game show or is it just something that they they purport to be a game show?
1: Right. Oh, yeah. Is, is that the hook, right? The illusion of the game or the audience participation being the thing that that gets people to, to watch it, uh, which I guess that opens a whole can of worms about democracy, <laughs> about, you know, as, as far as like how much of it is, uh, if it's presented as a democratic form, does it lure more people in, even if that illusion is being used to sort of strip people of agency? Um, but yeah, then I, I guess John Fisk outlines a lot of that, those categories in, in his book about television where like some game shows are, are testing like academic knowledge, uh, things like Jeopardy, obviously, or um, other kinds of knowledge like um, The Price is Right is, is quizzing you on how well someone knows the price of, of toothpaste and detergent. Uh, but then there's other shows and Survivor kind of fits more in with this is they test human knowledge about your and, and Family Feud would be another example, right? How well do you know other people? And the, the allure of, of watching it is to, in the case of Survivor, to see kind of how well someone knows the the people around them in these challenges to manipulate them. Or in the case of Family Feud, it's how well does a person know the absolute average person, right? Because winning in that game is not about having a sort of um, esoteric body of knowledge, but rather kind of being in touch with the most people out of a hundred uh, as one can be. Uh, so like, it's really, um, I, other people have written about how that shows sort of quizzing people on uh, conformity or on their ability to, to be like every, the, everybody else. And if someone who gives a wrong answer, a unique answer in Family Feud is a wrong answer uh, rather, than, um, rather than on another show where there is only one answer. And it's, it's impressive if someone can, can give it, um, can, can find it out of all the other possible answers.
0: Of course, then there was Truth or Consequences. I mean, you didn't take mm-hmm. the title exactly, but there was. I remember that one. That was one of the first ones I remember being on it. When they first started syndication, uh, it was on at night, and, um, you know, 7 to 8, you know, during the, the infamous uh, local time. But then the other one I found interesting, I've always found interesting, is Price is Right, because if you go back and watch some of the old ones like are on YouTube, the old versions, the old black and whites, it's a completely different game. I mean, yes, you still Mm -hmm. have to gain, you still have to guess prices, but it's more of a panel show as opposed to uh, the way it is now. So, uh, Mm -hmm. obviously. And then, of course, I still remember Jeopardy with Art Fleming. So, that was probably one of the ones that really got me because I like to be able to sit there and answer the questions or not, depending. So, Mm -hmm. uh, I sit there at night with my, my wife, and I must admit, we're Wheel of Fortune Jeopardy people every evening. And, uh, I'll sit there and answer the questions on Jeopardy and then I looked at her and I say, do you know, do you understand how much useless knowledge there is in my head? And (laughs) we talk about that a lot. So obviously, uh, game shows are are still a part for me, at least. Um, Now... In your introduction, you stated that you wanted to examine works that find meaning in the game show uh, just instead of just using it as a plot device uh, and metaphorically and, and those kind of things. How did you decide what material to feature given the number of examples out there?
1: Yeah, it largely came out of looking at what was out there and grouping things together based upon what I saw as common threads. Some of it was knowing well it's going to be impossible to do this book and not talk about Robert Redford's quiz show, or to talk, or and and to me, I thought you also couldn't really avoid something like The Hunger Games, or or even for me, White Men Can't Jump, that features Jeopardy as such a big plot, a big set piece. And then, as I found, as I came to look at it more closely, it also kind of forms the the thematic thread for the, the movie as well. Uh, but it was really a lot of just combing through and finding every, everything that I, I could in, in books or in movies, I kind of quickly decided not to take on television shows that feature a game show episode, because at at that point, that's a whole other book because every show that's been on TV long enough has a, the cast goes on a game show episode. Uh, Some of them have two if if they've gone on long enough, like married with children has a couple. Um, But it goes back to like the Andy Griffith show and stuff like that. But a lot of it was, was done more like that as, looking at everything and seeing w- what things fit together. And a couple of things that I looked at moved around as I, as I developed it, but largely I, these, these four main, or I guess if you count the introduction, kind of these five main threads came together for me. Uh, and I, I felt like, okay, these are the, these are the things that are going to hold this work together and have each chapter kind of gradually expand in scope so that the the first one is about the self, the second one's about love, so about some kind of partnership, the third one's about family, and then the fourth one would be about the state or the, the nation. And so I saw that as being this thing where the, the scope of the, the subject could grow as you get deeper into the book. And uh, and so some things that I was interested in writing about kind of didn't wind up fitting entirely. Uh, or either, or if they fit sort of felt like overkill that like at a certain point, I, the, the thing's long enough as it is, you know, why, um, why burden it with another example that might not be um, be totally hitting it. It probably has too many uh, as, it, as it is. Um, but, but yeah, so that was sort of the, the, the process. And then I think there is still enough material out there or still coming out that would, that would warrant, uh, you know, other people looking at it more or or something like that as it as it expands because even in right after the book comes out like another um, Hunger Games book uh, came out so I think this is definitely something that is still uh, kind of growing but for me it, it seemed like that this was the thing that would make it all manageable and still and make it and make it broad enough in scope but also not feel like just a grab bag of of Oh, well, here's a game show. Here's a game show. Like I, I wanted it to look at everything that featured a game show, but also still feel like it had uh, a clear direction that it was headed in uh, and, and something that could build upon itself the longer that the book went on.
0: Well, and all we we just need to get to the point where everything in network actually appeared as a real game show and then we'll a real <laughs> show and then we'll be done uh yeah. i still think yeah. watching that watching the especially towards the, you know those scenes where they sh- all the stuff that's going on and i said who would be? when that movie came out and it, it, no one really thought it would ever come to that and unfortunately it has exactly come to that and that's uh, what's well I yeah interesting
1: yeah i mean it's it's that's and that's the dark thing i guess about about the book is is the degree to which a lot of the kind of ridiculous things that some of these movies are putting out like like the running man or something like that how much of them seem to come to pass and i mean even this week we're getting kind of game show-esque stuff of look at watch your leaders get the vaccine live on tv like it, it some of it feels like like such a stunt uh, that's done for the the cameras and now it's uh Like we're even looking at like who's who's in line to get the the prize of the year, which is, you know, which is a vaccine for a a pandemic, right? Like some of the it's hard not to look at the way that some of this is presented and and talked about on, on television and not see kind of game show aesthetics or game show logic driving it.
0: So you use game show terminology instead of traditional chapter numbers. So in round one, <laughs> which is <Yes. was> the <laughs> section after the introduction, uh, which you call Toss Up, uh, mm-hmm. which is a game show reference, uh, you discuss the idea of a rigged game and how our consumer culture is affected by this trap. How best did the works you featured in this section illustrate some of these concepts?
1: Yeah, I think probably the, the two or three in that, chapter that that fit that best or robert rudford's uh, quiz show like i mentioned jonathan demme's melvin and howard and then uh, probably danny boyle's slumdog millionaire as well you know two of them quiz show and slumdog millionaire are investigating either real or imagined rigging and then melvin and howard i think is implicitly demonstrating that the the, the rigging isn't on the the show the rigging is in real life and the show is the, the thing used to trick people into thinking that, that they have a chance, that things aren't rigged. Um, but I think that the, the way that those works all show us that that consumer culture is a bit of a, a rigged game is the way that they're all propping up the, the more current version of the American narrative of rags to riches or how you can turn your life around overnight and that opportunity is available to everyone and a windfall is is just awaiting you, right? There are, there are no, you know, there are no poor. They're just not yet rich, right? That kind of, um, that kind of logic is being, being reinforced in in a game show, which is essentially that kind of up from nothing narrative on on steroids, right? Uh, and so in in quiz show, you kind of see, uh, well, maybe I'll go to that one. In a second, because I think it, it does things a, a, in a more complex way uh, in, in Melvin and Howard, you kind of see Melvin's character is continually uh, thinking that he's entitled to all of the things that he sees on TV and is willing to basically throw away everything that he actually has his hands on for a shot at. Uh, what the, the name of the game show is called Easy Street, right? That that's sort of the thing that he's chasing the whole time. And so he'll very gladly mortgage everything, every possession he has in his life in order to, to gamble essentially. Uh, Cause that's in, in that movie, that's kind of what it's all set up as I mean, it's, it's a lot of it is set in and around Reno and Las Vegas. So gambling is a very big fixture in the, in the movie. And it very carefully kind of equates game shows and then also just kind of American, um, life as, as a gamble rather than a, a meritocracy or something like that. And then in quiz show and Slum dog millionaire, they take that idea then. And in, when someone in Melvin's shoes becomes successful, like the lead character in slum dog millionaire or, um, or Jamal or, um, uh, Herbert Stimple on, on quiz show, they are, Basically, living that narrative, but they are going to be punished, suspected, and brushed aside because they don't fit the look for TV. They don't look like someone who is successful or who could succeed according to this culture. And so, in the case of Slumdog Millionaire, he has to, you know, prove himself like, kind of prove that he's worthy of what he has earned. Uh, and then, uh, in the case of Quiz Show, he is encouraged to take a dive so that someone more telegenic can really put forward the narrative that they want, uh, only putting, you know, successful, beautiful and, and waspy, uh, people on, on television. And so again, like they, they all work together to demonstrate how the, the outcomes on the show are, are either literally rigged in the case of, of quiz show or are kind of demonstrating how rigged the whole system is by only allowing certain people to succeed on the terms of that show.
0: And it's, it's funny because we do have examples of the opposite where the everyman or, you know, the, any person can win things like lotteries is the probably the best example where there's absolutely no skill involved. You just pick some numbers or even the lottery shows that are, I don't know, you know, in Louisiana, but in in, in Ohio, they have a, a, a weekly game show, which is lottery winners or people who, who have bought tickets vie for more money and literally it's just choosing. There is no skill involved in it whatsoever. But yet it's interesting you see different types of people as far as, you know, the, those folks versus the ones that appear on the quote unquote regular game shows or even something like Deal or No Deal, where there is absolutely no skill involved at all. You're just picking and hoping you're depending on chance.
1: Yeah. Well yeah, and and the the degree to which Shows either do or do not rely on on chance is another really interesting factor, Um, and the and I I think in a lot of the the ways that writers and filmmakers take on the show, they really kind of throw out that notion of chance. Um, They seem or or they they seem to use that notion of chance to show that it's an illusion, Uh, and because I mean they they are by and large more pessimistic in their and their outlook on things. Uh, and so all of the things that appear to be happenstance are, are usually in, in all of these works revealed to be something quite rigged, even in a movie that a movie like Magnolia that appears to have a whole lot to do about, uh, to deal with coincidences and weird chance happenings. It, it very um, stridently says, you know, a couple of times, like, this is not a matter of chance, right? That this all kind of has a larger connection or significance that we just can't see um that one's a little more cosmic and benevolent i guess than a lot of the others right where the the other films will largely say yes someone is controlling all of this behind the scenes and, and they don't love you right they don't have your, your best interest at heart and magnolia is a little more uh, open-hearted than than that
0: of course two of the three movies you just talked about are based on actual truth i mean fact
1: yeah I mean, yeah. they obviously both
0: take liberties, but the concepts are, are there. Melvin and Howard is famously the one about how Melvin claims that he met uh, Howard Hughes, the billionaire mm-hmm. recluse, in the middle of the <laughs> Nevada desert and took him back to his hotel and then claims he deserved uh, – he had a will that named him as one of the beneficiaries. Mm-hmm. And of course, Quiz Show is based on the actual Quiz sandals of the 50s, although – you know they do take some liberties the concepts
1: are the, yeah. s- are the same there but uh, yeah. so
0: those two are actually based on real life situations
1: yeah mhm yeah and even um uh, depending upon how far you want to go with this, like Chuck Barris's uh, confessions right. of a dangerous mind, you know, claims to be uh, based on based in in reality, but but who who really knows? Um.
0: Of course, Chuck Barris famously is a major inventor of quiz shows. he I remember, game shows and many of them, and of course probably most known for the gong show, which took it pretty much, you know, that was American Idol before American Idol, but uh, it was pretty much depended more on the humor part, although American Idol pretty much, especially early on, and it used to be at least, I haven't watched the show in years, but it depended a lot on the humor, just as much on the bad as far as, as, as opposed to the good.
1: Yeah, it was, it's fascinating how, when, yeah, when that show was new, how people would tune in for the first episode or two to see how bad everybody was and then check out for a while and then come back at the end. and, And you still see that to, I mean, to a lesser degree, but a lot of reality competition shows have followed that same model where the first episode is look at all of these crazy people who showed up and then, then you're going to spend three or four, five weeks getting rid of all of the people who maybe shouldn't have been part of the core cast anyway. uh, And then they keep around, you know, one really out there person and then the other skilled people. And then you just sort of watch the drama unfold there. But even in, yeah, in the case of American Idol, you had uh, William Hung getting, uh, he put out two albums or something like that, Right. right. That were, that were as successful as some of the runners up of those, you know, I mean, he, as a novelty act, he had as, you know, some, the same, he was basically on the same level of fame as the people who got to the finals. That's and that's basically I, the gong yeah. show, right? You right.
0: Know? I think it's similar to what you've been saying about th- things almost being rigged. I mean, we're not saying these shows are rigged, but we certainly know that the producers have a lot of control over the narrative and how it's presented. And I think that's one of the points you're trying to make with uh, the rigged game concept in, in the first chapter.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a good that's a good connection uh, to make. And it, it I, I don't really get into this in the... In the book necessarily, but you you can see how as these particular types of shows become more popular, the people who try to get on them are very well aware of the role that they might be trying to get cast in, right? There are there are people who study the shows for the purpose of going on them and, and succeeding as you know breaking out by fitting into a certain identity, um, and so they're basically you know willfully letting themselves throwing themselves at the mercy of a of a of a television show uh production uh, you know in exchange for what they hope will be uh some kind of greater windfall later right they're they're playing a different kind of game uh and you know and hoping that they win at it
0: of course now there's game shows that uh, feature people who were stars on other game shows <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know ken jennings and uh, holes hours yeah uh, they've all made careers out of their appearances on game shows most famously Jennings who at least will be the first to be the acting host of Jeopardy with Alex yeah Trump's death um yeah so then in round two you you talk about game shows and romance and yes how does the one example I remember was white man can't jump that you included but uh how do the t- you, you, you your point is is that they're not dissimilar Romancing. Yeah. And, and, and talk a little bit about how these kind of examples you gave compare the two.
1: Yeah, uh, this one was, I think, the most fun to work on because it's also kind of the silliest. Uh, but then it, it winds up looking closer at it, going to a kind of a real place and maybe even like a real dark place. Um, and it starts with the idea of the dating show. And, and dating the dating game and Love Connection and shows like that that are in uh, the newlywed game. Oh yes, the things that Barris, uh, most of the shows that Barris invents wind up um, becoming a new phase of the game show in the 1960s when it moves to daytime and the prizes and the questions become uh, less high stakes in order to make up for the, the scandal. And it also in a weird way coincides with the rise in divorce rates in the United States that I'm not saying that the dating game is, is the reason that divorce rates start to go up in 1965, but I think that it's an interesting newlywed game, night. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, uh, but like, I think the interesting thing is how the, they, they both, both of those uh, items, I guess, note a, a change in attitude uh, that, that, I think the game show uh, winds up capitalizing on, in, in a rather interesting way. And long story short, where this winds up taking the the book and taking me is to notice that that game shows are basically uh, hardcore capitalist pornography. Uh, that that you're in that the the way that the the shows themselves are structured. And the way in the sort of parts of ourselves that they appeal to are the same structures and appeals as pornography. And where this all ends up is that the last few works that the that the round talks about are like either works that deal with the the intersection of the two specifically or are out and out game show erotica uh, that does exist in in different corners of the internet and Amazon, like Kindle singles and things like that. Uh, And so I guess what they what they both kind of show is, uh, I guess, excess and uh, people um, kind of uh, on a, on, a, on the, the Price Is Right. You're essentially watching people uh, copulate with things, right, with with consumer goods, and that the the joy in watching them is 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 to watch people sort of get with as many different products. As, uh, as one can imagine far more than what a person could get with in their own, in their own daily existence. And I mean, that's, that's essentially the same impulse as, as, uh, as porn. And, um, and so they, what they wind up doing in these works is they kind of present romantic relationships as this broader uh, marketplace where one, I guess, sort of freely buys and sells and consumes uh, you know, as, as, much as, they, as much as they want without, um, without ever having to, to commit, uh, I guess, um, even though the uh, express purpose of a, of a dating show is for someone to commit, it, it kind of works against that idea by saying, well, here you have the choice of, you know, three bachelors today, there will be three more tomorrow. You know, or in the case of a, a newer show like The Bachelorette, right? Here's twenty-something people, um, you know, for you to choose from. And then the the point is um, almost less about which person they wind up with than how many people they are, you know, are with in the in in, in interact with in the lead up to that. Um, and in the case, and, and the one that kind of works against this in in this whole setup is White Men Can't Jump, which is. Um, it plays by a different logic and and notably is working with a different kind of game show than all of the other works are uh, all the other works kind of align themselves more with reality dating shows or with the price is right. Whereas white men can't jump is dealing with jeopardy. And um, there is a famous scene in the, in the movie where after um, uh, Woody Harrelson and Rosie Perez's character uh, make love and she says she's thirsty and he goes and gets her a glass of water. And she says, you know, when I say I'm thirsty, I don't want you to bring me a glass of water. I want you to sympathize with me and talk about what it means to have a dry mouth. Right. And, and, and it's a, it's a really funny scene because he totally doesn't get it uh, and what it's about, but that's really also kind of what, uh, what the, the choice that the movie makes of using jeopardy is perfect for that because jeopardy is not about answers. Jeopardy's all about asking questions. And that's all she wants him to do is to ask her questions and to learn uh, from her rather than to be a stereotypical, you know, patriarchal male and presume that he has to have all of the answers and the solutions. That really, the, in that movie, the, the path through a good romantic relationship is through asking questions and and resisting the the urge to answer and solve uh, and so it's it's really quite quite brilliant uh that the that the movie is able to to get that message across um through the the subplot of of Woody Harrelson's relationship with Rosie Perez and her studying to be on Jeopardy versus the the main plot about Harrelson and Wesley Snipes uh sort of uh Hustling people in in games of pickup basketball, where it's all about like they're keeping the answer a secret that Woody Harrelson can play ball, uh, you know where and so I, I think it's a a really cool um, movie to play around with that. But of course, that one is the much more uh, kind of critical and optimistic uh, look at the game shows interaction with romantic relationships, where most of the other work goes in a far darker and more pessimistic direction that essentially looks at um, how the game show logic has taken over uh, American life to such a degree that every kind of interaction, including those most intimate uh, romantic uh, interactions are now uh, game show encounters.
0: You even have a picture from White Men Can't Jump in the book of Rosie Perez sitting there reading an almanac, which yes. nowadays that wouldn't make sense to many people. But you know that was how you learn trivia is you just you just poured over fact books and and encyclopedias and almanacs and other kinds of things to just learn as much as you could or at least soak up as much as you could. Whether you actually learn anything, it's hard to say. But at least. Uh, uh, you get an idea, and of course, that's part of the whole consumerism, too, of game shows, where by watching them, you start to say, okay, well, how can I win this game, or what can I do? And and she presents an example of someone during that period who that's how they would uh, try to come up with a way to, to, as you point out, um, to actually win the game, so to speak.
1: Yeah, and, and I guess thinking about it in, in market terms, she... Says at one point, I'm, I'm full of so much useless knowledge that I, this is similar to what you were, you were mentioning earlier, like she has basically stockpiled a bunch of goods that she is looking to sell or unload, you know, in, in some way and final in like the game show is kind of her, her only viable market for it. And she lucks out that the day that she's on is also the day that has the category that she has stocked up the most of is the, the foods that start with the letter Q, um, you know, and and she gets the daily double, uh, on on that question as well. And, and that's what catapults her to, to victory and and presumably into a multi like week run and maybe tournament of champions later on, the movie doesn't, doesn't go there, but it's, it seems likely. Um, but yeah, it, it is this, um, that notion of, of not like knowledge as a as a commodity that she is that she is waiting to uh, to have it be useful to someone, and of course the irony is she would really, really like it to be useful to Woody Harrelson, but uh, but he is not um, he's not buying. <laughs> you know he doesn't even know there's an exchange being offered, and that's the the thing that 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 takes that ends their relationship basically.
0: So now in the next section, um, this is one where you get more into the written work because obviously, even though the, you, we've been talking mostly about how films and, and game shows, you also review fiction and its role in in this whole concept. Um, so the next the idea of fa- the idea of a family conflict, um, comparing the game show family where you know a contestant with the people who are running the show and whether that you know how that represents a possible family versus a, the real family and in one particular one of the examples and I know you've written extensively about David Foster Wallace you talk about his work and, and and others can you discuss these written works especially although you can bring up anything related to film as well but I think this particular chapter you know you spend a lot more time with the written work um, how they present how people connect in the game show universe
1: yeah because these are these are puzzling ones and they are the starting place for for where this project for the for this project um, because uh, JD Salinger and David Foster Wallace and especially the early work of Paul Thomas Anderson are kind of the, the people who as far as their sensibilities go and the things that they're interested in you think would run as far away as possible from a game show as a, as a subject, um, except maybe to, to condemn it relentlessly. Uh, you know, J.D. Salinger, like the guy who creates holding Caulfield would have no interest in a game show host. Right. Yet, um, his, his other body of work apart from catcher in the Rye, basically concerns this, this one family, the, the glass family, uh, who all, all seven children were at one point in their lives, contestants on a radio quiz show and they're all kind of trying to come to live with the mantle of of quiz kid the rest of their lives and arguably it's what's uh, one of the things that's contributing to their many neuroses and in the in the story or novella i guess Zoe, uh it deals kind of really extensively with the the role that television uh, and prior to that radio have had on, on this family conflict. And then in this early story, Little Expressionless Animals, Wallace kind of gets into the same thing. Uh, and so I, I wound up looking at how those two writers and then Anderson with his film wind up forming a bit of a continuum that I guess could all get housed under the umbrella maybe of the new sincerity, or, or certainly it's, it's in that kind of ballpark. Um, where they're taking kind of television and the, the post-war era's um, reliance on it or how the post-war era has been kind of steeped in, in television. Uh, and they use that to, to ask like whether it is possible for people to form sincere and meaningful connections in a world that's been dominated by mass media and where we might expect Salinger and Wallace to say that no that's not possible this is a corrupt and awful thing they actually wind up being more optimistic than than one would think and um all of the the connection in the Salinger story winds up happening at least the meaningful stuff through some kind of mediation uh whether it's at the end the the climax of the story is a, t- a telephone call even though the two people are in the same apartment they're talking at and phones on the other end of the apartment. And the first half of the story, uh, Zoe is behind a shower curtain talking to his mother. So there's all of these kinds of barriers that, um, that would seem to, to mimic the world of broadcasting. Uh, and then in Wallace's story, it, the real connection is all about the contestant and her ability to connect with the camera and have a magnetic impact on, on people watching it to the point where Merv Griffin and the other uh, people on the, on the show don't want to uh, get her off the air. Uh, and so they're, they're all playing around with how the, how mass media can be a tool of, of meaningful connection, but that it all really depends upon the people making the show uh, and about how, whether they are able to connect or, or go outward. Uh, Wallace uses the, the phrase convex. Uh, That uh, if they if they can become convex, then they are reaching out into um, across the camera and the screen into uh, a viewer's life, and they can make a a meaningful impact. And then Anderson takes that same idea and is now going to put it out in in his his world. His movie is going to go on both sides of the of the of the screen, right? And, and look at how that kind of connection can be, uh, can be found in, in a world that's, that's basically uh, where everyone's split up into uh, networks of connections that they themselves can't see. Um, but we as the viewer can see it. And uh, I'm getting a little ahead of things here, I guess, but that in, in the movie, the, the fascinating thing about it is that uh, like the movie itself is sort of becoming convex toward us the viewer and by encouraging us to form all of the connections between all of these people in, the, in this layered narrative who aren't aware of how they all connect to each other then we are sort of, sort of being uh, being shown how we can then make those similar connections in our own world which is very very much like the world that's in Magnolia, so it like Wallace and Stallinger kind of show us the false connections that that media can create, uh, whether that's through the the game show or through Tom Cruise's character. Um, but then it also shows us the the meaningful connections getting made by people who don't um, identify themselves completely with mass media and game show style encounters, uh, so that we can hopefully get, like, the movie's like a map, I guess, for how we can navigate the the, the hyper-mediated world that we live in.
0: It's just as a question. Yeah. Um, what have you seen, have you looked at all as to, do these works, these films and books and other material, do, how do they handle, do they work internationally? I mean, oh. I know we've got game shows all over the world, um, but I obviously you focus... On the United States, pretty much nonstop, except for, you know, here and there, I mean, with Slumdog Millionaire and a few other things. But uh, this is something that I think, do you agree that uh, this is something where it's now more worldwide? It's not even just local anymore?
1: Yeah, I, I think so, and I mean, certainly you, you've got the tradition of the British quiz show or, or game show, right. um, and I, I guess the move that I'm making in in some ways is, like, that this might be, even though I don't explicitly kind of call it this, this is maybe one of America's biggest exports uh, as an intellectual idea that, yeah, we've got game shows now all over the world, um, and some of them originate in other countries and then get made as American game shows, um, but and then that the other, really, uh, there's a lot
0: that vice versa.
1: <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And so the, so, because so much of it originates here in the United States and it becomes kind of uh, the way, whether American culture means for it to or not, it is kind of the way that we talk about ourselves and present ourselves and our ideals to other people as entertainment. Um, and it has proven to be very infectious. Uh, and so it's not necessarily to say that when it pops up in other places, it's also, um, that, that it's, that it's American per se, but that I think the, while it occurs in other places that they're, the country that's kind of identified with the game show the most, um, in terms of its, um, of both the game shows identity. And I'd argue the country's identity too. Uh, it's the United States. Um, and, um, and that's I don't think that's a good thing. <laughs> but um, but uh, but I, so I guess while it um, while it does play internationally and has certainly spread around the world, the, the way that I wanted to look at it most directly is um, is about how how this is an overlooked, um, I guess, I, identifier of post-war American culture that it hasn't really been taken seriously or, or looked at as particularly meaningful. Um, but that the more, um, the more we look at it, the more it seems inextricable from the way we think and talk about ourselves to ourselves and also to the world.
0: Yeah. I know early on in the book, you talk about, uh, that game shows to a large extent were always considered, And, you know, in a lower class way in some ways where nowadays or but then over time, they've gotten the other direction in the extent that NPR, you know, has a couple of them or have had couples of a couple of them, even though they've been presented more for, you know, not as seriously, but still they're there. And so uh, the idea of the game show is especially like you say in the in this area is all over the place.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you can see that too in how like the production values change. I mean, looking at the production value of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire up against The Price is Right, mm-hmm. you know, one of them is way more serious, right? And in, in like the sleekest modern kind of look, um, and the other like doesn't take itself seriously at all. But but we can see how that's a that's indicative of a, a broader degree of acceptance of what the show's presenting. That millionaire can present itself like that and not get laughed out of the room right uh, you know um that's it's it's quite something
0: so then of course we want to make sure we talk about the the, the one of the your final full chapter where you talk about <clears throat> game shows as death-defying uh, acts so yeah you know where contestants uh, lives are on the line and of course uh um the examples you give including the hunger games both literary and uh film and then of course mm-hmm. stephen king's uh, running man which was actually one of his bachman books and he yeah. actually wrote another one called the long walk It during that period where it's the same concept where you know you've got people boys who choose to to go on this walk and then the only way you you win is to have everybody else dead so, yes. uh, and they're both examples of death defying game shows.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, I had uh, the long walk is one of those works that, you know, I, I, I was considering putting in and, and did not wind up, uh, doing it, I guess. Cause it's the, I guess some of it's a little closer to sports than, uh, than to a, to a game show per se. Um, and, and that one, it's really interesting cause he's very clearly it's about Vietnam, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a very clear kind of example of that, but yeah, these works all, you know, every alarmist, um, ever who wanted to complain about the state of television or the state of media, right. is going to be, oh man, someday they're going to be, you know, we're going to be killing people on TV and everyone's going to be watching it. Right. And so every, every few years you get another kind of work of media that is going to take that idea as it's jumping off point. Um, and, kind of every generation has a version of it that really captures the imagination. Uh, more recently, I guess, you know, from me, when I was a kid, it was the running man. And now it's the hunger games. Um, you know, and these are, these are huge things that all wind up kind of talking about the same, the same questions. Um, and I, I guess I find while they are very often st- originate from a point of wanting to criticize, I guess, sort of the tastelessness of, of television or of entertainment. I think they wind up always going more toward uh, being dire warnings about the, the path that the state might be on, uh, because obviously in order for any show to get away with with killing anyone on TV, they're going to need the cooperation. And um and permission of, of the state to do it. And, you know, in, in the hunger games, especially, right. There's, there's no difference, right. I mean, about the only thing that we get any examples of what the government of Pan Am is even up to is pretty much all just that like all the government seems to do is run this show. <laughs> you know, that's, we don't really see much else in the movie about them because everything is, is around this, this one show. So I don't know what they do. The other, you know, 360 odd days of the year. But, uh, but in The Running Man, I think, especially the movie version, the adaptation, I think does it even more cleverly where um, the, the, rather than the government taking over media, which is sort of the or- Orwellian version that we always get of, of this kind of scenario, in The Running Man, it seems more like entertainment has taken over the government, uh, right? There's a, like the president has an agent, um, which of course they, they, they do and have for quite a while. But, uh, but I think that's sort of the, the humorous part now is that the, the balance of power is not with the, the government in The Running Man, but it's with, with entertainment and, and they're gonna run the show. Uh, but, it, um, but anyway, I think like those works all kind of wind up, Warning us about the the blurring of the line between, I guess, um, entertainment and, and governance, uh, or and and how um, how when we when we get that we're going to get spectacle that is going to uh, essentially try to aestheticize uh, human suffering uh, in in a way to to profit off of it or for a state to um, to maintain its control over over wide swaths of people.
0: Yeah, I think um, they pretty much require—it's uh, a given that most of the time when you see something like these examples, it's a dystopian society of some sort. I right. You can actually point towards going even back into the Roman Empire with the gladiators. The idea mm-hmm. you have to do something to keep the people happy, so we'll, we'll put this stuff on and even you know forget the fact that, that it might be death-defying or might involve killing. At least we'll keep people happy and, and, and quiet.
1: Yeah. Well, and arguably, I I guess a lot of uh, now you're making me realize that uh, maybe a lot of the works even earlier in in the in the book are are dystopian as well. Um, Even if they're not science fiction, uh, if the their treatment of the the game show and its uh, relation to American society, it's it's basically depicting a dystopian world without um, without using genre.
0: So then. To, to, to tie the book up, you talk about the present yeah. and what do you, yeah. well, we always have the game show. And I think we pretty much have talked about that quite a bit, but also the idea that we now have a game show host who is president of the United States, uh, at least for a little while longer. And, um, uh, just, but now, granted, that's not how we became, although I suspect to an extent that's how people, the average person probably knows him best from that television show, even though it never got yeah. the great ratings that he always claimed. But uh, <laughs> the idea that somebody who, uh, you know, is known from a, at least partly from a game show can now be a leader.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that, um, and this wasn't wh- what the project started out right. to be, because I, I started working on it maybe a few months before he announced his candidacy. But as I continued working on it, I just realized, oh, man, like, I didn't really want this book to mean what it's coming to to have to be about. And then, you know, then I have to try to say something intelligent uh, about this, this situation that I, I feel woefully uh, ill-equipped to do. But yeah, I think you're right. Like sure his um, the, the the Trump brand is uh, just to it, I guess, I make sure everyone,
0: everyone knows. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Just Go to make on.
1: sure everyone knows who, who we're talking about, <laughs> in case there was any doubt. I mean, you know, the, the elephant in the room here. Um, but yeah, it um the, the brand of, of Donald Trump as being a successful businessman who could then run the government like a business is entirely propped up by, by The Apprentice, right? It's, it's a fiction that created uh, a reality that was on the rocks. And basically, by propping up that fiction, resurrected a business that was, by all accounts, not, not really successful any longer. Um, and that illusion has, has held uh, for longer than the life of the show, and you know, has, has carried carried him into the the White House, uh, you know, with with other things. But, um, but I think that um, the the identity and the brand is all kind of uh, from this game show, um, or at least in as you said, in most people's imagination. Um, and I, it's not unlike; it's really just another version of uh, of the you know, where in the '80s, the at the time of the Running Man, the joke was, oh well, we've got a movie, we've got an actor as president, uh, you know, now what are we, and then now it's like, okay, well, what's, what's the next step from there? Well, a game show host, right, Beco- becoming president. Um, and it's, it's, it's a very much a similar playbook, I think, um, that, um, you know, but whereas, you know, Reagan's um, career, uh, had, had, he had a much more involved uh, career in government than, uh, than, than Donald Trump's before becoming president. So it's, um, but it, it becomes again where we see uh, as these works often warn about the the degree to which image overpowers uh, the actual, uh, to the point where one can sort of take that image and and make the whole make the world uh, form around it, uh, and that's largely what I think we're we're noticing, we're we're seeing here is that a lot of the the rhythms. Uh, of the, the past four years or five years have been uh, us watching the rhythms of the political landscape follow the rhythms and path of a game show and seeing everything, uh, uh, seeing our government sort of turned into uh, a, a show that is sort of programmed for prime time and arranged around um, the new, the, the, a news cycle uh, to continually keep us, um, hooked, uh, and glued to our screen, you know, don't touch that dial. The next thing is coming up. And to the point where, you know, we can't even, um, kind of process anything that's coming at us anymore. Um, and I mean, it's almost comic looking at the the book's list of, oh, here are the things that have happened in the, the Trump administration. And, you know, the, I've forgotten about half of the things that are listed in, in this book because there's been, you know, three dozen other things that have happened since then, right? This, this is obviously pre-impeachment and and all, and all of this, and, and, and pre, uh, you know, quote, widespread voter fraud, unquote, right? It's before all of that stuff. And so it, um, it it's wild, but I think it just goes to, uh, to prove the point that, um, we are kind of following the, the rhythms of, of a reality television game show, uh, uh, or perhaps even an earlier kind of form of a game show than we are following the, the rhythms of, of, you know, certainly good government or, uh, really of any other kind of comparison that people like to make, um, to describe, how this moment works, I think the the game show is really the most fitting um, of them all and why it's perhaps most important that we uh, look at this really carefully uh, and try to understand the game, like how the game show world has, has, or how our world has been absorbed into the game show world so that we can figure out how to extricate ourselves uh, from it or at least get better at playing the game.
0: The book was published a year ago, so obviously uh, you've been working on other things. I wanted to to ask you if there's other projects you want to mention. I noticed that you've got a an edited co- collection that you're one of the editors for, "Conversations with Steve Erickson, That's scheduled to come out in in 2021. Is is that your the next big project that's that's on your radar?
1: I guess so. Yeah. The um, yeah. So that uh, that volume yeah comes out in July, and um, and it's really fun, and I think it. Um, I I think Erickson's a writer who deserves a lot more, uh, more attention. And hopefully this collection of interviews will, um, will demonstrate how much his, his thinking is, um, that he's had his finger on the pulse of American culture, you know, for the past 30 years. Um, and, and has been able to articulate it very well in interviews as, as in his fiction, uh, and so, yeah, so that's, that's uh, coming out and it's available for, you know, for pre-order and all of those, those fun things. Um, and then I've been, uh, I've had some stuff about uh, David Lynch uh, come out um, in the past few months uh, in one of them, there's an article in Music in the Moving Image that's about uh, cover songs in his movie Lost Highway, uh, had another piece in literature film Quarterly that was about Uh, David Lynch's influence on David Foster Wallace's fiction. So so some of my other interests kind of uh, colliding there and then moving ahead. I mean, uh, uh, honestly, the, the, the pandemic has slowed a lot of the, the productivity Uh, I'm, I'm working on a a piece about uh, Twin Peaks, the return and Cormac McCarthy's novel, the crossing that I'm going to be doing at SCMS uh, this, uh, this spring uh, that I'm, I'm hoping uh, to talk about how they talk about the atomic bomb in very similar ways. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm really excited to, to see how that all comes together. And then on the horizon, it's, it's more trying to figure out what the next big project is going to be. Uh, I'm, I'm considering doing something similar to the game show book by looking at how, how books and movies uh, grapple with the, the MKUltra program from the, the Cold War, I, I, but I think that's going to be a, a very long a, a thing uh, to to work on, uh, and then I I want to pursue some some other other projects about the about the musician Trent Reznor or um, or about pinball machines, and, and so um, so I'm you know I, I'm kind of all over the place, but I think that's sort of the um, the fun thing about. The the position I'm in, where uh, you know I, I teach high school full time and I adjunct at um, at a university for one class a semester, uh, and so I have this uh, this luxury I guess where um, I'm I can I'm just kind of going after the things that interest me and and developing them at my own pace, and sometimes it it means the work takes a little longer or is a little more um, uh, a little less methodological I guess in in its origins but um but I guess it also the the pressure then is is more like I kind of just get to do this for myself and and follow it to to see where it goes and so um I guess right now I'm I'm at at that spot where I'm I'm trying to figure out where I want to go next.
0: Well, that's good. Yeah, I I SCMS will be virtual this year. Yeah. Or in 2021 unfortunately March is a bad time for me so I'm not sure I mean I'll probably go ahead and register it for it and just hopefully catch what I can um, but uh, uh, well good luck with that and good luck with your continued yeah. work as I say I found the book to be very interesting and like I say even though it's a year old I hope people know uh, uh, reach out for it if they haven't read it already because I think uh, it's useful and it's actually a concept that will continue to be added on as time goes on, as there's more writing and more films and stuff that, and more, you know, as, as life continues, I, th- I think uh, it will be a topic that can be written about again, maybe 10, 20 years down the line, sort of in the same way.
1: Oh, thanks. Yeah, well, I, I really appreciate your help and calling more people's attention uh, to it. And yeah, and to the, I guess, the broader conversation about how we can look at how certain types of media are represented in other form, in other types of media. Uh, and, and see what, how that maybe can help us understand things even better than just looking at the, that media directly. Well, thank
0: you for your time. I'm glad we were able to, to catch up. This will be my last re- interview for 2020, although it won't probably come out till next year. But uh, as I say, uh, I'm glad that to end the year on a, with such an interesting topic, and I really appreciate your time,
1: Mike. Oh, thank you, Joel. Yeah, I appreciate it, too. Thank you.
0: My great thanks to Mike. Game shows continue to be used in various ways in film, literature, and other forms of media. Mike's book is a great way to analyze the possible meanings for them. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.